This is Flavor Report, where we deliver your favorite stories on food, drink, entertainment, travel, and adventures to our city sections around the country and around the world. My name is Joe Winger. Today's interview is with Jay Booksbaum from the Royal Wine Corporation. So, without further ado, let's jump right into our interview with Jay Booksbaum from Royal Wine Corp. So I wanted to say that we're here with Jay Buxbaum. Is that correctly? I was pronouncing your name. Uh, and so I just want to make sure I say this correctly. And if I don't, please correct me, which is you're the VP of marketing and not consumer education. What was the word you said earlier? Director of wine education. Director of wine education at Royal Wine. And uh, you are one of the hosts on kosher.com's show, Swirl which we're certainly going to hear about. So thank you for being here. I'm excited to talk with you about wine, learn more about kosher wine. I'm, 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 I have the feeling that my understanding is, is not as accurate as it could be and should be. And my hope is everyone watching this and listening to this also is going to learn a lot about kosher wine today. And more importantly, how accessible it is, how delicious it is, and how a good kosher wine can be just as good as every other wine out there. And so it's really about exploring and taking some chances and trying things. But I'm excited to talk about upcoming Passover. I'm excited to talk about food and wine pairings. And I'm excited to learn more about some of the wines that we tasted at the event a few weeks ago. But uh, most of all, I'm just glad to have the conversation with you. So thank I you just, for being here. Go ahead. Starting off very generally, what is your favorite thing about wine? What was the moment that inspired you to get into wine professionally? My favorite thing about wine is very simple. Every time you open up a bottle of wine or champagne or sparkling wine, it's a celebration. It's not just about it's not just about the, the nuances of the varietal or the history of the winery, which is all very interesting and all very exciting and all very stimulating. But it's I remember my first uh, sales management meeting when I called in all the people from all over the country which in those days were like four, you know. Um, one of the things that the operations, I had each part of the company tell them what they do. So uh, accounts receivable told them their part and accounts payable told them their part, production told. And then the owner who was in charge of operations got up there and said, didn't talk about operations. He said, we're not in the wine business. And everybody looked at him like, what? No, we're in the, wedding business, we're in the brisk business, we're in the confirmation business, we're in the, you know, the celebration business. And that's really what, you know, I like, I'd like to be able to believe what, what we're doing is bringing a celebration every time we, you know, someone opens up our wine. I love that. That's beautiful. Going back to your biography, you are the director of consumer education at Royal Wine and you're a coach. Oh, I'm sorry? wine education wine education and um you're the co-host of kosher.com show swirl Correct. So what is your background what is the background and the experience for someone who has these roles and then what would inspire someone to pursue these roles for you so before i came to royal wine which is uh, only purveys kosher certified wines i was in the non-kosher wine business 
Uh, I worked for a, a large Italian importer, uh, and I, I took the Grossman's Guide course to wine many, many years ago, about 30 years, more than 30 years ago. And But most of all, I've learned about wine from the winemakers themselves and from the vineyard growers themselves and from the blenders and the what we call the cellar rats, which are the, the guys that, you know, that spend the time and the effort working with the winemakers. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what gives me, and, and the fact that I come from the non-kosher, you know, background many, many years ago, what I was able to bring a, a wider view to this kosher, uh, this kosher wine producing and purveying company. So that's what gives me the background uh, to be able to be the wine education education person. But, you know, it's like anything else in life. You know, some people uh, really want to always grow and always learn. And, you know, as much as I know, which I think is, you know, pretty good amount about wine, I'm always interested in the latest vineyard practices, the latest winemaking practices, the latest grapes that they just discovered, etc. So... That's what that's what I I'd like to bring that enthusiasm for growth in knowledge about wine to everybody who I meet. I love that the curiosity aspect, and um, I guess from an educational point of view, just to follow up on that, I, I would say there's two lanes in my opinion: those who are always curious and always looking to taste more. And then those who are, I'm going to use the words intimidated by the process just in general. And so just to follow up on that as, because I, I want the reason I'm fascinated by the educator title is I've always been so happy that when I meet a wine educator, they are so receptive and so open and they can just answer. I mean, the amount of variety of questions you must get that are both expert level as well as very, very introductory, but also very complicated because the person asking it just has no idea. And so when you walk into a situation like that, what kind of hat must you put on metaphorically or how how can you be so patient and so open to such a broad variety of questions? Or is it just something you've learned in, in, in at this point, it's every day is the same, not the same, but you walk into a room and you kind of get a feeling what's going to happen. So first of all, I'd like to take the the snobbery and the myths out of out of drinking and, and enjoying wine. And for those people who are not interested, just drink what you like. You know, there's no there's no one of the actually one of the problems in our in our industry is, is that sometimes we make it too complicated and we think you need to be too sophisticated in order to enjoy it or drink it. The answer is no, just enjoy it, drink it. And, and I'll, I'll get to your specific question in a minute, but the, the best way to do that is to go into a retailer that is interested himself. And, you know, when people say to me, what's what, you know, what should I taste today? I ask them only two questions two questions, red or white, sweet or dry, right? And then by asking somebody that question, those two questions, well, I like it semi-dry, okay? That already puts me in, you know, already puts me into a phase of what they might like. And 
red or white, I like it red. Okay. So then already I know. And then, and then I can give them a small insight. I don't have to be long-winded or, or, you know, whatever, or very complicated or very detailed. I can give them a small insight into what I would suggest. And if they have the interest to go further, then of course I can, I can wax poetic for, for an hour on any given wine and love to, but you have to know your audience too. You have to know that the main thing about wine is God, just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. And uh, if you're interested in more, I, I'm here, you know? And so that it's really reading your crowd, like a good comedian or like a good whatever, Right. You know, um, I always want to share more. I think that people who want to learn more will enjoy what they're drinking. It's just like food, too. You know, um, some people just want a good steak and don't want to know anything about it. Just give it to me. You know, others. Well, how did you get it to that exact, you know, pinkness inside? And what did you use fresh pepper or did you use, you know, just powdered or whatever and and knowing that for many people actually enhances their experience of the dish and i think the same thing is true of wine for some people it doesn't but for many many it does and i think it always will if you if you learn more that's that's phenomenal thank you i love the comparison of the food because i i i personally agree and i i found that a restaurant experience has just only become better and better and better and more elevated the more they share with us how it's being made and, and produced and, and the source of it, et cetera. So, you know, I mean, um, just to your, just to your Joe, just to your point about that, when I walk into a restaurant and the server is really well-informed and tells you about the special in detail, gosh, it gets me, I get chills sometimes, you know, and I, you know, and then I'll, and, and then if I order it, I'll, I'll actually, Maybe it's perception, maybe it's real, but I'll really enjoy it more because I know more about it. So, I a thousand percent agree. And just to add to that point, for me is because I love, I've learned so much about spirits and wine by speaking with people who who've made it and understand it. And so, as a, as someone who enjoys food and is learning to cook, that's my favorite part as well. Which is when I'm I'm eating something, expecting an experience based on how it's presented. And then if I can ask somebody, my God, I, I love this aspect or this mouthfeel, and they have the answer, that just, it, it has a whole nother level of knowledge and experience and, and taste. Uh, so obviously Passover is coming up. Uh, what do you feel is wine's role in Passover? And what should our audience be thinking about when they're choosing the wines to have at their Passover celebration? Okay, so from a traditional point of view, Passover, every single person at the Seder table, uh, the Seder meal, is required, and I wish this were true, uh, that they'd actually do it, is required to have four cups of wine. Uh -huh. Generally speaking, what ends up happening, and that's man, woman, and child. So, you know, obviously children are not drinking four cups of wine, mm. and frankly, the adults aren't either, but they're refilling their cups four times. So um, just keep that in mind. I, I, it's important to keep that in mind so that you don't get drunk. You know, it's, the objective is not to get drunk. The objective is to enjoy the experience of the Seder, and wine plays uh, a, a definitive role in that. 
But when it comes to children, just so that everybody is clear, that's why we have grape juice and sparkling grape juice. That takes the place of alcoholic beverages for those people who are either underage or or even of an age where they're not drinking. You know, we, we are in, uh, I mean, in my own experience, family or whatever, associated family, there are people that do not drink for various reasons, as you know. Mm-hmm. And, and there are elderly people that can't drink because of their own, you know, uh, place and, and space and uh, condition in life. However, having said that, what I like to do is I like to start with a light wine. There's four cups. So I start with a light wine, say a Pinot Noir, uh, often a wine that is lower in alcohol generally. Okay. Hmm. And then the second cup is usually a heavier wine. And the reason why the second cup is a heavier wine is because that after the second cup, you go into the meal. That's when the food part takes place in a traditional Seder right after the second cup. So you can drink that wine throughout the meal because you're going to have some richer foods during the course of the meal. And then the third and fourth cup, I like to go back to like, um, again, a lighter wine, maybe a rosé. Uh, and then finally, the last cup, I usually end with a uh, a sweet wine, just uh-huh. as a kind of um, personal, you know, let's let's end this on a sweet note, so sure. to speak, you know, and both both in terms of flavor and also in terms of messaging. Having said that, that's me. You know, everybody else, everyone else should do what what suits them. So, for example. Lots of people use only grape juice for all four cups. And then during the meal, they'll bring out some really, if they like good wines, they'll bring out some really delicious, heavier, richer, uh, more flavorful drinking table wines. Uh, And there are those people that will use only a light wine. There are several light wines, traditional light wines. We have, for example, uh, from Kedem, the brand Kedem, we have a cream Malaga, which is three and a half percent. So it's kind of almost like like grape juice, except with a little bit of alcohol in it, you know. So uh, some people, and here's a big one, some people insist on beginning their wine, their Seder meal with an Israeli wine hmm. as a as a in deference to the to the country, you know, of their, uh, you know, to the country of origin for most Jewish people. Uh, even if if you didn't you were never born there, even if your great grandparents were never born there, that's where it all began. That's where the seder, you know, the first seder in was in was in Israel. Well, actually, it was in the desert, but the first seder after the desert was finally in in uh, Israel, with the building of the holy temple at that at, at that stage three and a half thousand years ago. So, and some people like to go international. Start with Israeli, then go California, then go Spain, and then end up with uh, maybe a, a wonderful um, late harvest wine from France or something. You know, so there's there's lots of ways to go about it. In fact, one there are two seders every year, so maybe the first night you do only Israeli, the second night you do international, and vice versa. Fortunately, over the last twenty years or so the quality of america i'm sorry of kosher wines is is at least as good 
some people say better, and in some cases, maybe worse uh, for a variety as non-kosher wines. So, And they come from at least 17 different countries throughout the world. So, you know, there's a lot of choices out there, over 400 different choices. This might be a naive question, but do you feel as though the wine world, I don't mean trade, but the, like enthusiasts, have any idea, and I shouldn't say that's too draw, strong, but their knowledge of kosher wine, because you just mentioned the international, how many different countries create it, produce it. How do you feel most general wine enthusiasts have any level of knowledge to, to kosher wine and just how, how diverse it is? Or do you feel that that's a, an area to grow? That's that's definitely an area to grow. Uh, I can I can show you clip after clip after clip of, you know, we we are showing we have a very uh, robust and progressive uh, program to promote Israeli wines. And the first time many of right now we're doing it in South Beach Wine Festival right now, wow. tomorrow, today, tomorrow, whatever. But people down there they taste israeli wines for the first time and they and you'll ask them what do you think about the israeli wines and they would say wow i didn't know israel made real wine i thought what do you think of it and some i have one clip where someone says i thought it was bathtub wine and yet it got a 96 in robert parker or 94 in the wine spectator or you know and and that's true they make great cabernets great Merlots, great blends of all kinds of wines from Israel, California. One of the one of the highest rated wines in California comes from Herzog Wine Cellars, and that's a hundred percent kosher. But people, you know, if you tell them it's kosher, oh wow, really? You know, so yes, there's a lot to grow. Lots of people do know, but there's a lot more to a lot more a lot more of that to spread. Let's get really basic for a second. Um, for those out there who are at a very, very starter level, let's talk about what is kosher wine? How is it different from other wine? And then I, I'm, I'm just, I, from what I understand, I don't want to say complicated, but you know, th there's several steps to the process. So can we just simplify it a little bit and summarize the details and the process of kosher wine and the process that makes it kosher? And is that is that the best way to even is that even the best way to ask that question? It is the best way to ask that question. So first, let me take the myth out of what kosher wine is or isn't. You know, when I'll when I'll stand in front of a hundred people and and do a seminar on kosher wines, one of the questions I'll ask is, how many people know what kosher wines is? And then a bunch of people will raise their hands, and I'll say, okay, what is it? And the the answer most often quoted, oh, it's blessed by the rabbi. Wrong, absolutely wrong. Um, the unlike, unlike any other kosher product, most kosher foods, most kosher foods, are a matter of ingredients. So, for example, in cookies, as an example, kosher non-kosher cookies could contain gelatin or animal-based oils and, and products. Kosher wine. Kosher cookies cannot. Okay. Um, burgers or, or, you know, meats have to be killed in a certain way. 
in order for them to be kosher. They can't contain, fish can't contain any crusticans. They have to, it, so it's all ingredients-based when mm. it comes to kosher food. Kosher wine and kosher, non-kosher wine can and sh- should be identical in, the, mm. in what's in them and what's how they're made. Identical. The only difference between kosher wine and non-kosher wine is that from the crushing of the grape until the sealing of the bottle, it's overseen and handled by an observant crew, a, a, a rabbinically Jewish observant crew. And the reason for that, and this is the key, the reason for that goes back to the original question. Blessed by the rabbi. No, the rabbi is there to make sure that there's no blessing in the wine. Because millennia ago, uh, wine was blessed by pagan in pagan ritual rites. And so the rabbi is there to make sure that the wine is neutral, that it's you, the consumer, that makes it special, that makes the Jewish blessing, or that it, you know enjoys it with your anniversary or your your you know your child's your child's confirmation or whatever. So that when it comes to you, it's neutral. The rabbi is there to make sure that that now, of course, those kinds of blessings don't take place anymore mm. in the real world, but. Still, once Jewish theology says that once a rule is made, we don't break that rule. So from the crushing of the grape until the sealing of the bottle, uh, wines are overseen and or handled by a rabbinical authority, uh, a confirmed rabbinical authority. Now, having said that, over the last hundred years, and that's a very short time in the making of wine, there have been ingredients that are sometimes used in non-kosher wines that cannot be used in kosher wines. That doesn't mean they are always used. For example, gelatin is sometimes used as a fining agent to clarify wine. In kosher wine, we can't use that, never will. Most non-kosher wines don't use it either, but it can be used, and the rabbis there also to ensure that that's not used. Uh, Isinglass, which is a uh, a kind of... um, a kind of clarification, clarifying agent that may or may not be kosher it comes from a comes from a fish that may or may not be kosher. Sometimes used sodium casinate. Sodium casinate is a an acidifying agent that is sometimes used in making non-kosher wines. Very often, never used, or often never used. But that comes from a dairy byproduct, casein. So even though it's kosher it might render the wine not usable when you're having a meat meal. So all those extra additives, preservatives, agents, etc., that may be used in non-kosher wines can never be used in kosher wines. So that those are the really the two differences. One, just to just to sure. encapsulate, sure. is that from the crushing of the grape until the sealing of the bottle, there's a rabbinical uh, crew there to make sure that no blessing goes into the wine, and two, that that, um, that no foreign substances that are not kosher physically mm-hmm. can be used in the processing of the wine. There is one also nuance. It's called mivushal, which is flash pasteurization today, yeah. which allows the wine to be handled by anybody who's not observant, whether it be Jewish or Gentile, and the wine retains its kosher certification 
And that's a very long Talmudic discussion as to why that works that way. If you have an hour, I'm glad to share that with you. But um, suffice it to say that most wines today go through, many wines go through this, kosher wines go through this mavushal process, this flash pasteurization process, and so therefore can be handled in a public setting by uh, observant and non-observant people alike, Jews and non-Jews alike, and still retain its kosher certification. And by the way, an interesting thing about, I hope, you know, you know, stop me if I'm getting too long-winded, but an interesting thing about the Mavushal process, the flash pasteurization process, is now many non-kosher wineries are using this process under a, a, under a process called flash detente, which actually um, enhances the wine Wine is still not kosher because there's no rabbinical crew watching it, which is the most important thing, but it enhances the wine by getting better extract out of what we call phenolics. Phenolics is the skins and the seeds. And if you can get better extract, you can, the wine can be often richer, you know, more, more, uh, more colorful, etc. cetera. So uh, Beaucastel, for example, which is a great, uh, Southern France, uh, very expensive wine, uses a similar process on all of their wines, even though the wine's not kosher because there's no rabbinical proof from the beginning, from the question to the ceiling. But it, it, you know, some people have said that the this flash pasteurization is not good for the wine. Well, guess what? There are a lot of French producers and now California producers that are using this process in just plain old winemaking. I, I have to admit, I, I do love the details and I do love, uh, let's say, simplifying the uh, the demystifying of it all. So, no, I, I enjoyed that very much. And I think it's interesting to hear, I don't say rumors or hearsay, but other people's opinion who other explanations I've heard are 10 or 20 percent right based on what you just said. But so much of it is either inaccurate or just unclear. And so thank you for clearing it up and thank you for providing all of those details. That was amazing, I appreciate One it. One other detail which is very important is, is that if that's true, which it is, that yeah. kosher wine and non-kosher wine are made identically the same, except for those small exceptions where they exist, then kosher wine and non-kosher wine should be as good as each other. Now, sometimes they're not. There are some kosher wines California Cabernet from Napa Valley that is not as good as it should be. On the other hand, there's some kosher California Napa Cabernet that, for example, comes from Herzog, mm -hmm. which are far better than their counterparts at the same price, in my view. So you can't judge, the, you should never judge a quality of a kosher wine based on the fact that it's kosher or not. Judge it based on the fact that it's a Bordeaux, it's a Napa Cabernet. It's a Sonoma, you know, Chardonnay, et cetera, et cetera. And judge it based on its varietal. The fact that it's kosher mm -hmm. is either a great thing for you because you're a kosher consumer or, or couldn't care less. But judge it on its quality on its own. Don't, kosher should not come into the equation as, as, as it, as it's, as a, from its quality point of view. Very, very well said. And I think that's, I agreed, and I think we, we have to find 
ways and messaging to a educate people on you know as you just said that there's not necessarily that they're the same and so very very well said a very big special thank you to verbo with over two million bookable vacation rentals verbo connects homeowners with families and vacationers looking for something more than a hotel for their trip the verbo community offers families an array of rental property types such as condos, cabins, lake rentals, beach houses, and more. Discover properties and destinations that everyone dreams of visiting. Verbo, where families travel better together. Find more information at verbo.com. That's V-R-B-O.com. Okay, back to the show. Um... So a few weeks ago was the Kosher Food and Wine Festival in Manhattan. Um, I found it extremely impressive. It was big, a big event and a great crowd and a great variety of food and wine and, and spirits, etc. And uh, if you could just tell us a bit about how you were involved and what your experience was like, both from behind the scenes as well as just walking around. I don't know if you probably had time to be a consumer at all that day, but... What was your role like and how did you feel about it? About 20 years ago, because I don't want I don't want to give away too much of my age here. No, about 27 years ago, I'm guessing. Uh, remember, I came from the non-kosher uh, you know, field right. and there were always wine festivals. Yes. And I said I said to David Herzog at the time, who was our CEO at the time, he's now our chairman, and his son Morty has taken over as a CEO. I said, David, why don't we do a, you know, a wine festival? And he said, what's that? And I said, well, Bordeaux does it. Wine Spectator does it. We should do it too. Invite a bunch of restaurants. And, you know, that first year, we did it at the Jewish Museum in Lower Manhattan, Holocaust Jewish Museum, the Holocaust Museum in Lower Manhattan. We had a total of 350 people. Now we have a total of 3,500 people. And, uh, you know, we were like biting our nails thinking, boy, is anybody going to ever come to this? Well, today we sell out well in advance. Uh, we now have somewhere about 50 different wineries, if not more, maybe 60, 70. And the winemakers come in and, you know, and we have consumers from have flown in from as far away as Canada and wow. even California and even Latin America, uh, some, a few sprinkling from even Europe just to see the wines and to talk to the winemakers. And, and we have about 12 different restaurants that, um, you know, that offer their food. So it's just a, a wonderful experience for people to actually talk to the winemakers, taste the wines. It's just an absolute wonderful, we've grown from 350 people, like I said, some gosh, no, how many years ago to uh, over 3,000. That's remarkable. And yeah, I mean, I guess the challenge I always have is um, you just never quite know what an experience will be like until you walk in because I've been to events I was expecting to be like yours was, and they end up being surprisingly modest. And I've been to ones that just my eyes widen. I go, my gosh, 
putting this together and the people and the passion and the expertise. And, and the beautiful thing about it was speaking about how you mentioned uh, the winemakers were there in person. Sometimes there's festivals, I'm sure you've, you may have produced, but you certainly have been to them where they feel rushed, where it feels like there's nine hands with glasses reaching out and the person's so busy pouring. The amount of times I could have two, three, four questions and the crowd is there, but it's just, there's something about the energy of that room and the vibe of that room. And I think without getting too much into the weeds of it, I feel like how it was designed and the fact that the wines are on the perimeter, but by the time you got to the second half of the room, and I mean this in a good way, there was just so many more booths of wine that I felt like it just was spread out in such a nice way that you you had the opportunity to have meaningful conversation with the winemakers and they felt the space and the time to actually respond and engage. And it wasn't just, here's your two ounces next, here's your two ounces next. It really, there were times where people there were asking, you know, asking how, how did you like the Pinot better or the Cab better? What, let me tell you more about it. And so you really just created a scenario where it was not just a variety of wine and a quantity of wine, but the conversation was, it, it was there. It was allowed to be there. So cheers and thank you. And we do something a little different than I believe any other wine uh, event. Mm -hmm. That is, is that we insist that the winemaker not pour. We actually hire hundreds hmm. of designated pours with experience so that the winemaker actually often is standing on the other side of the table, not behind where they pour, and has the time to interact. You know, you like that wine, so the, the pour will pour you his Pinot Noir. And then he has the time, instead of reaching for somebody else who's bugging, well, can I have that Pinot Noir too, like you just said? You know, he has the time to talk to you while the pour is pouring the Pinot Noir for the second person. And we insist on it. We don't allow, there's, there, there's a halakhic, a, a religious reason in some cases for this, but mainly it's really it's really a great way to allow for the first time at, an, at a wine ex experience and event for the winemaker to focus on talking to his end consumer, whether it be the retailer or the, restaurateur or the actual guy or girl who takes it home you can tell them it, it's, it's such a stark difference and i have to wonder because i think most winemakers may not have that opportunity that experience at other festivals so i can absolutely see why a winemaker would go out of their way to be at this festival and pour at this festival or this event because as you just said it's so important so often they are just pouring 18 glasses at a time so just know from a consumer point of view, it's so unique and so appreciated and really allowed for some meaningful conversations to happen and some, I'm not sure educational, but, but, but that, that seems too strict of a word, too formal, but I definitely tasted and learned more about wine at that event than most events. So thank you for being so meaningful about that and noticing it. Um, segwaying to the wines themselves that are being poured, do you have... I don't say any favorites because I'm sure much like kids, they're all your favorites. But if you were going to point out any wines there, can you walk us through two or three 
talk about taste profile or the winery itself or pairings and kind of tell us what your highlights were from that specific event. Okay, so so first of all, as you said, if I mention one child above the other, boy, are those other children going to get pissed, you know? Fair so enough. I, 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 I'm still going to do it anyway. But <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway, but, you know, keep that in mind. I love them all. And, and the truth is I do love them all. Um, even the ones I don't drink because, you know, I know how much effort, time, and and how much people, even if it's not my profile, how much people love Bartonor Moscato as an example, okay? Um, but having said that, I, I think it's important to point out that there are major grand crews and pre premier crew wines that we've partnered with. So, for example, Las Combes, Giscourt, Ponte Canet. These are non-kosher, very high-end, very premier crew wineries, uh, the Rothschild family of wines that have partnered with us, Leoville, that have partnered with us um, to make kosher cuvées. Uh, so there's an example of just another example of how judge the wine by the wine, you know, whether it's kosher or not. It's Las Combes. It's the same as the regular Las Combes. It's just that the rabbi is there during that particular bottling, uh, you know, harvesting and bottling. All right. But I think one of the highlights for me is the amazing wines that come from Herzog Wine Cellars. Um, you know, there was a philosophy in the Herzog family not less than 10 years ago. They've been doing this since 1948 in America. Uh, and in, since 1985 in California. And there was always a philosophy not to own any vineyards. Well, Joseph Herzog came along about eight years ago or nine years ago and said, we can't do this anymore. We have to control our own destiny. And they started buying vineyards in California. So now more than 60, we're hoping about 70% of all of their wines made are made from estate vineyards, wow. vineyards that we own, not only control, not only buy, not only have long-term con contracts for, but we own. And so the quality is totally vertically integrated so that, you know, our Baron Herzog, I, I, I love what Morty Herzog, our, our CEO, once said. The, the word boutique winery is often uh, thought of as, you know, a winery that makes less than 10,000 cases right? And really, that's not what a boutique winery means. What it means is, is that there is attention to detail on whatever level of wine they're making. So for example, Baron Herzog wine, which is about 12 bucks, you know, a good percentage of that, maybe 30, 40% comes from estate vineyards. Who ever heard of a winery making $12 introductory wines from estate vineyards? That's wild. I mean, that's boutique, even though it's 12 bucks. But I will tell you that one of the most impressive wines I tasted was two wines from that winery that I really love. That not, They're not their, their most expensive wines are the Russian River Chardonnay, which is a ridiculous bomb of a Chardonnay, and their Napa Valley Cabernet. So those two. Uh, I think... Uh, one of the amazing wines is from France, 
is a wine called Ponte Canet, which, uh, you know, they, which they made a kosher cuvee for us, delicious bottle of wine, way too young at this point. Mm. So don't rush out, rush out and buy it because it's going to be gone by the time it's ready. But, you know, hold on for, for a year or two. And some of the amazing Israeli wines, for example, Carmel Limited, which is a blend of, which is a classic Bordeaux blend. It comes from Israel. It's not Bordeaux. But when I say it's a classic Bordeaux blend, it's Cabernet Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Bordeaux. Okay. But it's big, rich, and flavorful, and very complex, and comes from the Judean Hills, mostly, area. Um, so, uh, and and then there's a really wonderful group of wines from LV, which is a, a winery that's, and here's an interesting backstory. LV is owned and run by the Cohen family. And they're the first Jewish family to make wine in Spain in huh. 500 years since the expulsion in 1492. They can trace their roots. They come from, of recent years, they come from Morocco. Huh. And but they trace their roots back to Spain before the expulsion. And and they resettled in Spain about 25 years ago and started making wine for the first time in over 500 years. But what's key to that, it's a great backstory, but how is the wine? And the wine is delicious. They really, they really have focused on making very high quality wine. So LV wines is another one of my favorites. But like you said, so many of my children are, uh, there's a wonderful boutique winery coming out of uh, out of Italy called Terra di Setta. Mm. They only make, a, I don't know, 10, 12, 15,000 cases of wine and all of it's kosher from an all kosher winery. But again, very, you know, they have one of the highest rated, Terra di Setta is one of the highest rated uh, Chianti Classicos called Assai, in all of Italy, kosher and non. Right. Not as kosher, just a highly, probably the most highly rated, one of the most highly rated wines, period. So there's that. I mean, I can go on and on and on. I'm sure. Know, I'm kind of closing my eyes and going through the room. Um, so there you go. Yeah, it's some another time where I would love to even go more specific. Just from a behind-the-scenes point of view, and you may not, you, you don't have to answer this. I just, when I know a Festival producer, I'd love to ask this just in case. Not that I don't want to put a negative connotation to it, like a problem child, which I'm not going toward, but most festivals are aiming to get certain products or certain boots or certain brands. And for logistics reasons or availability reasons, scheduling reasons, they don't know if they're going to work out. But gosh, I really I hope that booth makes it. Was there any booth or brand that you really wanted to get? And you weren't sure you were going to get them. You weren't sure. And then it did work out. And thank goodness the stars aligned that day. But just every once in a while, there's these fun stories where you don't know, you don't know, and then it does work out. So in case there was, I'd love to hear it. Not this year. Okay. Not this year. Everybody showed up that we wanted to show up. Um, there were one or two that we wanted to show up that didn't. So I don't have the reverse, which was you're asking for. Sure. Um, and I'll tell you, one of them because of uh, familial issues back home in Israel, Vitkin, a wonderful winery that does not make uh, Vitis Vinifera, does not make Chardonnay and Cabernet, makes only um, 
Mediterranean variety of wines. Couldn't make it this year. I wish they would have been there. I think they would have been a, a great, um, great addition. We represent them, but they just couldn't make it because of familiar issues. But there was also, I think, one of, but if you're talking about that, one wine variety that is indigenously and only Israeli at this point, I'm, I'm sure it'll be taken on by others, is a, a, a varietal called Argaman, A-R-G-A-M-A-N, okay. which translated from the Hebrew means purple ah. or or scarlet, if you will. And they invented that grape. It's a hybrid of two different grapes. I can't remember the two grapes now. But originally, they, they invented it in the 50s, and they did it in order to bring more color to lesser wines. But 30 years later, they discovered, hey, wait a minute. This wine really makes delicious wine on its own. And mm. so just in the last seven, eight years or so, a bunch of Israeli wineries have been making Argaman. And man, it is colorful and rich and flavorful. And a lot of people discovered that. So I think closest to answering your question, it's probably the wines made in Israel of the Argaman grape that was the most wow, you know, like, I, I, it may not have been the best wines at, at the event, but it was certainly the most eye-opening. Could be oh, the man. most eye-opening ones. And also okay. great. I mean, you know. Um, so combining two things you said, one a second ago and one earlier in the conversation, uh, you're saying how closing your eyes and walking through the event, and that reminded me of someone walking into a wine shop. And we also spoke a while ago about the intimidation factor of wine in general and how we're trying so hard to remove intimidation and make it so easy. And so as as a wine pro who's definitely not intimidated by wines and wine stores, can you give us some hints or share your strategy as far as when you go to a wine shop or when someone goes What's the best way to browse? What's the best way to find the wine, the perfect wine for dinner tonight or the wine you're looking for when you don't necessarily know what you're looking for? So I, I, I get this question a lot. And my, my advice to everyone is go to a wine store, a local wine store where the, you know, where this is not very progressive, I guess, but you know, individually owned and operated by the owner themselves, who himself is a wine lover, who's willing to spend the time and the effort, um, you know, and the and his expertise with you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's the best way to go. I mean, that, that's what I would do. You, you know, I'm impressed, frankly, with... with uh, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, but I, I'm impressed with Total Wines. And the reason I'm impressed with Total Wines is because generally I'm not impressed with, with the big chains. But I'll just give you an example. that had nothing to do with wine. I, I went to visit my daughter in Florida, in Boca, and uh, I know my, my son-in-law loves good, unusual beers. So I went into Total Wine and to get a beer. I'm, I know very little about beer. And I went to the beer section and I said, my son-in-law loves unusual, wonderful beers. 
Well, the guy spent 25 minutes telling me about all the new beers that he's got and where they come from and how they're made. And this is richer and that's more fresher. And what are you having with it, et cetera, et cetera. So if you can speak to the reason I say I'm, I'm impressed with that is because they really make the effort to, um, you know, to have trained people on the floor and knowledgeable of the products that they have on the shelf. Mm-hmm. So and more often than not, those that's true of individual proprietary retail stores. So that's my advice to you is go to one of those places where the, there's expertise on the floor. Got it. No, I love that. And um, just as an add on to that, just in case um, any hints or as far as not necessarily bargains go, but any buying tips only because, I think so many people always think, and I, I'm, I don't know if, if you saw this, but I think last week somebody put out an article that's getting trashed, but that article is saying you can't get good wine for under 50 bucks. And obviously that's completely false, but do you have any buying tips or suggestions about to somebody who is looking for a phenomenal wine, but certainly doesn't want to spend big bucks? Yeah, this is, there's great, great wines in the 30 to $50 range, great wines, not just good. Mm-hmm. And there's damn good wines in the 15 to $30 range. There you go. They may not be great, but they're damn good. Nice. Uh, I'll just give you, I, I, I can give you examples from my own portfolio. Okay. Sure. Uh, Herzog lineage wines, 20 bucks. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Chardonnay that is, that is partially malolactic fermentation, if not most of it. So you get that big richness and greasiness to it in a good way, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then you have uh, Israeli wines that um, from Carmel, from what we call the Appalachian series, which is about 25 bucks, 22, 25 bucks. Um, so there's, you know, there's no reason. Oh, great. Uh, there's great. Um, uh, not Chianti's, um, Riojas from, uh, they're great Riojas that are, you know, 20 to 30 bucks that are just absolutely delicious, complex, even though there's only one variety, it's all uh, Tempranillo. Uh, so, you know, I can go on and on and on. And sure. I have to tell you, we just did a, a level three WSCT course okay. with a master of wine. And one of the wines that he chose to to use in the course was a wine from Australia, a Teal Lake Shiraz. Huh. Right? Mm-hmm. 12 bucks. This is a master of wine, Jay Yeoman. Okay. Okay. And and we did it, he did it with the whole class, 30 solid people. And he said, Whoa, this is one of the best Shirazes out of out of Australia I've ever had. 12 bucks. Man. So, you know, you, you know, it, it's true. If you want a great wine. You probably need to go to thirty or forty or fifty dollars, and if you wanted a magnificent wine, maybe a little higher than that. But there are there are really damn good wines between fifteen and thirty. There are great wines between thirty and fifty. And uh, I, I will say, Joe, though that often it's not always the case, but often the more expensive wines are more expensive for a reason. Hmm. I mean, I know wineries in in France and in Israel and elsewhere in Spain that have that choose that are very expensive, but there's a reason for it. And the reason often is because I'll just give you an example. 
Sure. You can get you can get wines at six hundred dollars a ton, and then there's wines that cost ten thousand dollars a ton. Why? Because the the uh, the um, production or the the amount of grapes that come per acre can be five, you know, a half a ton instead of six tons per acre. Mm. So it really costs more, and the grapes are really more concentrated, more flavorful, you know, per, more perfect. And the resulting wine, I'll never forget, I used to sell, in, a, in another lifetime, I used to sell a wine called Lytton Springs Infidel. And in those days, Frank Pryle of the New York Times wrote it up once as being the quintessential Zinfandel. Of course, the next day it sold out. And I asked Walt Walters, who's no longer with us in this world, but I asked Walt Walters, what makes your uh, Lytton Springs Zinfandel so good? And he said, there's only three things that matter in making great wine. I said, okay, what are they? And he said, good grapes is most important. I said, okay, what's the second? He said, good grapes is most important. And what's what's the third? Good gra- so it's kind of like, and that, and that plays a big role. And then, of course, with with even winemaking practices, if, if you have a wine that comes from the most unbelievable grapes, and then you age it for three years in oak, and you're spending, you know, $3,000 on, a, on a, a brand new French barrel and leaving it in oak for three years, that adds to the cost too. And all that, that also adds to the quality. So it, it's not just some producers that's trying to make a buck, a big buck on their wine. Often it's real. It's very real. The amount of time, money, and effort, and resources that go in to making a given wine that's expensive. But having said all of that, I still go back to my original. There's excellent wines between 15 and 30. There's amazing wines between 30 and 50. And above that, there's also magnificent wines. I love that. Thank you. And I love the uh, elaboration and, and actually how you broke down the costs actually helps it make sense as well. A very big special thank you to Verbo. With over 2 million bookable vacation rentals, Verbo connects homeowners with families and vacationers looking for something more than a hotel for their trip. The Verbo community offers families an array of rental property types such as condos, cabins, lake rentals, beach houses, and more. Discover properties and destinations that everyone dreams of visiting. Verbo, where families travel better together. Find more information at verbo.com. That's V-R-B-O dot com. Okay, back to the show. So the one thing I really wanted to touch on that we didn't is so far is as far as pairing goes if we could talk about some traditional passover and cedar meals or dishes and then if you could suggest any specific bottles that would pair really well with it and obviously for um you know if we go back to that sheet we both have from the top 15 some of those might be included here it's up to you but um any specific this dish with this bottle that would pair really well i would love a few examples of that Okay, so so um, what's wonderful about uh, the Jewish community is that you know it's not 
it's not monolithic anymore. I mean, and it's never been, but so you have Sephardic Jews and you have Ashkenaz Jews and you have Israeli Jews and you have Middle Eastern Jews and you have Jews from all over the world. And the influences of the local cultures, non-Jewish culture, has been great on them wherever they come from. And so, you know, Sephardic Seder's main courses may be different than, uh, uh, who, you know, maybe different than a European uh, traditional uh, Seder meal. And so, so for example, um, you know, Sephardic European might have um, brisket, classic classic Seder brisket, you know, often. Um, and then there are, and, and so that would go with maybe a, a big, rich Crianza from Spain or even a Napa Valley Cabernet uh, from Herzog or the Crianza from, Crianza from um, uh, Spain is, uh, oh gosh, what's the name of the brand I'm looking for? Um, Capsanis. Capsanis. Uh, on the other hand, you know, the fish, you'll get a, a wonderful salmon, which would go with a, an amazing rubin, uh, rosé that comes from, um, rosé comes from um, the south of France. What am I, what's, I'm having a, a brain fog here for a minute. Um, Provence, a Provence rosé from Rubin. And what's interesting about the Rubin Provence rosés is that they range from everything from about 20 bucks to almost 60 bucks. So their grand crew is 45, 50 bucks. And their entry level uh, Rubin B is about 20. So, uh, and, and so, the, and, and of course, the $20 wine is a lighter, fresher, fruitier, whereas the big grand crew has actually some oak influences on it. Um, so, I would say that, and here's a misconception that a lot of novices on food and wine pairing don't get. You know, we, we tend to, we correctly, the wine and the food have to be in harmony. So they should be, one should not overpower the other. So they should be in harmony. So if you're having fish, why is it that people say white wine with fish and red wine with meat? It's not because it's a hard and fast rule and it shouldn't be. Um, what really what they're saying is, is that one should not overpower the other. So that if you're having a fish, and it's cold, and it's light, and it's fresh, and it's lemony. You want to have a cold, light, fresh, and lemony wine to go with it. If you're having, on the other hand, if you're having veal, right, mm -hmm. that is that is served cold in this kind of in that kind of dish, whichever you know, then that too should have something light, fresh, and more, you know, more lemony than if you're having veal that is encrusted and and richer and in a red sauce etc then that same veal would go with a with a much richer say shiraz or syrah 
So the key to matching food and wine is try to have them in harmony. And it, once again, I'm going to go back to what I said about, you know, buying wine. When you go into your retail store, ask, tell that expert what you're having for dinner. Tell that proprietor, I'm having grilled chicken, you know, with lemon. Or I'm having grilled chicken with, in a, in a, 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 I don't know, a mushroom, a rich, dark mushroom sauce. Well, that's different than having grilled chicken cold with lemon. Two different wines. Sure. Okay. Same, same grilled chicken, but served differently is two different wines. And so my, uh, my, I don't want to call it admonition. I always like to do the positive. My, um, Suggestion is always look to pair the wine so that it, the food doesn't overpower the wine, nor the wine overpower the food, that they be in harmony. I love that. Harmony is a good word. I, going back to the intimidation and the wine snob, as I go out, I buy a bottle, I'm heading to my event, my celebration. Any social tips on, is there a fun way, do you have fun advice on ways to share this knowledge to these trivia without coming across like a snob like for me I, I unfortunately because i do love the knowledge and i do love digging deep i don't say show off but i tend to get really intrigued by trivia so do you have any social hints on ways to share this that come across less stereotypical wine snob so i i, I got a great i got a great idea it just came to me and from you asking the question. You're invited to a Seder, right? So you call up Josh and you say, Josh, you're the cooking house, right? And he goes, yeah, I'm doing the cooking. I'm just curious. Thank you for the invitation. I'm just curious. What, what are you serving tonight? And he'll tell you. And then when you walk in with that bottle of wine, after you spoke to the proprietor, you'd say, you know, and you're sitting down at the table. They opened up your rosé, Right. For the first dish, which is, uh, you know, great, uh, I don't know, uh, salmon, you know, tartare. Okay. And, you know, I, I just want everybody to know, I called Josh before and he told me they have these salmon tartare. I went into the retailer and he told, and I told him that Josh is going to be making this great salmon tartare. And this is what he gave me. And he told me because he thinks that this will go great with the salmon tartare because it's light and fresh and it's got a little lemon acidity. What do you guys think? And then the wonderful part about that is you already have the knowledge that this is what the proprietor told you, but then you can have a discussion about it. Hey, you know, Jay, because I'm the one who brought the wine, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Jay, he's right. Or you know what, Jay, I don't get that, which is fun and, and doesn't seem like, you know, you're, you're condescending or speaking down to anybody. You're sharing instead of being instead of coming off as the expert, you're actually sharing guys, what do you think? You know? And I think that's the way to do it. You know, if you can, if you can find out beforehand what's being served, that would be the best way to do it. And then share that reason for why you brought the wine with everybody when you open it. I honestly, that's probably the best answer I've ever heard to that question. <laughs> and what I love most for me is not only is it kind of, a really positive solution but going way back to the first answer you gave 
when I think of a celebration, I think of community. And I think of, uh, honestly, it's hard to celebrate alone. So when you're celebrating with people, and that's a great way to also get everybody in that room to talk up and have an opinion. Because if, if, if we present it as I got this meaningfully based on this dish, based on our host's cooking, and everyone there can then say, do they love it a lot? Do they love it a little bit? You know, how are they feeling by it? So really, really good answer. Thank you for that. Um, what, what I love about that also is, is that I do this all the time. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll pull out a new wine that we just released mm -hmm. on Friday night. I mean, our table, thank God, is usually filled with people, <laughs> five, eight, ten, sometimes as many as 20 plus people on any given Friday night. And I'll pull out this new wine and I'll talk about it and I'll tell them why. And, the, and some people will say, not for me, which is fine, which right. is also exciting, which is also fun. No, I did not like it. Great. I like hearing that too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, most of the time people go, and but I get a lot of, Jay, I can't believe it. That that grapefruit that you talked about, now I see it, you know? Sure. Wow. And that, you know, cotton candy that you smell, that you said you smell, thank you. I, you know, I really, I, finally, I can identify that, et cetera. So most often it's, it's very positive, but I, I'm happy to get the negatives too. I love it. Now, I, I, again, that was the best answer I've heard. And I, I love both the reasoning behind it as well as the result, as well as the community aspect. So really well done. I'd just like to share one last thought with you. Sure. You know, when it comes to St. Patty's day, Everybody's a little bit of an Irishman, right? All right, right. And when it comes to Dosequis, you know, everybody's a little bit of a Spanish, Mexican, you know, south of the border expertise because you want to drink that Irish whiskey and you want to have that wonderful beer, etc. Sure. What I what I think is wonderful about the Passover Seder, and we actually have some churches, you know, and some restaurants doing promotions that are not kosher, and the Seder isn't kosher. But it's, it's, I love to talk about this because um, what's different about the Seder that any other uh, Jewish holiday is, is that, you know, when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, the new year, you know, it's all about going to, to, to synagogue, praying, and then coming home and having a wonderful lunch or dinner, or whatever. When, it, you know, when it comes to Yom Kippur, it's all about going to the synagogue. In order to celebrate Passover, all you got to do is show up for dinner, right? All you got to do is share good wine, good food, and good conversation, and the story, of course, of the Exodus with family and friends. So my my, I urge everyone to consider, you know, uh, just doing a Seder Passover dinner, even if it's just for the fun of it. It's, uh, you know, just as a, you know... Um, cultural fun new experience I, I love that well said to summarize or to introduce to some tell us a little bit about kosher.com and tell us about this show that you co-host on kosher.com so kosher.com is a, a separate entity that yeah. that uh royal wine family has um has some interest in okay um and so, therefore, as the wine educator, they they asked me and Gabe Geller to uh, 
do a, a story, a, I'm sorry, a show on some kind of regular basis called Swirl, yeah. which is kind of like what I'm doing here with you, only it's it's more focused on a specific topic because, you know, as is the case is with most of the world, which is so ADHD, that, you know, we, we do a, you know, a three to 10 minute you know, shtick on whatever the, you know, Israeli wines one time, holiday another time, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's really all about raising the awareness amongst consumers of the topic at hand and the wines that we're talking about. If it's just a few minutes, is it one show per wine or or do you kind of... No, no, no. It's okay. usually, usually do anywhere between a couple of a couple of wines to as many as six or seven. Oh, wow. Okay. Moves fast then. Okay. Yeah. Um, and obviously I'm assuming the show's on kosher.com, but, but where else can we, what formats is the show on and where can we find it? It's on kosher.com. And I think that's, that's pretty much where, I mean, um, I guess you could, uh, you could Google or swirl, at kosherwine at kosher.com mm -hmm. and probably it'll pop up there. You could Google my name, Jay Booksbaum, and I think it might pop up there, but kosher.com and then go down to their videos for swirl mm -hmm. and you can find them there. Wonderful. Um, so last thing, thank you for your time with this. Do you have any final requests from the listeners and the viewers as far as what you'd like them to go do after being intrigued and inspired from this conversation? Yes. Yes, definitely. Forget the myth. You know, 100, 150 years ago when Jewish people first came to these shores, whether it be from Russia or after the Holocaust from uh, Germany and, and elsewhere throughout Europe, they all settled in, uh, most of them settled in Northeast, and the only grapes they can get were Concord or Vetus, uh, you know, Vetus from uh, from the Northeast. Those wines, those grapes are actually very low in sugar and high in acid, and as a result, in order to make them palatable, they would have to they would have to add a lot of sugar to them. And so, kosher wine for many years, you know, 20, 30, 50, 60, 70 years, meant that you had to put up with sweet syrupy concord grapes that those days are gone they still exist people still want that traditional sweet syrupy concord can get them but kosher wine simply means that from the crushing of the grape to the sealing of the bottle it's overseen by a rabbinical crew and today got great cabernets please go out there and Experiment with Israeli wines, experiment with Herzog wines, uh, and uh, you'll just enjoy it. Well said. I love it. Jay, thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed learning about kosher wine. I've enjoyed learning just wine in general from you. Uh, and again, thank you so much. And uh, where can we find you? So just Google you basically is the best way and find yeah. you at kosherwine.com or kosher.com. Kosher.com. All right. Have a great day. Thank you again. Take care. Bye-bye. And that wraps it up. Huge thank you to Jay Booksom. Huge, huge thank you to the Royal Wine Corporation. Um, 
I found it to be really interesting. I learned a lot about kosher, about Passover, and about his percept his understandings of wine. So thank you again, Jay. Thank you again, Royal Wine Corp. And uh, I can't wait for the next conversation. Until then, have a great night and choose something good to drink tonight with dinner. Be well. A very big special thank you to Verbo. With over 2 million bookable vacation rentals, Verbo connects homeowners with families and vacationers looking for something more than a hotel for their trip. The Verbo community offers families an array of rental property types such as condos, cabins, lake rentals, beach houses, and more. Discover properties and destinations that everyone dreams of visiting. Verbo, where families travel better together. Find more information at verbo.com. That's V-R-B-O dot com. Okay.